pitch. Here's a squibber, tough play, and that's a base hit all the way. Ellsbury is on, still nobody out here in the eighth inning. How many times do you see a ball get by the It's game four of the 2007 World Series. Top of the eighth inning, the Red Sox are about to sweep the Colorado Rockies in a series that, truthfully, was never really in doubt. Boston had been ahead for 30 of the first 34 innings so far, and they're winning 4-1 to one right now with Jacoby Ellsbury at first. But the most memorable part of the whole World Series is about to happen. Closer for Colorado gets loose. There is big news brewing, and for that, we go down to the field and check in with Ken Rosenthal. Joe, I just spoke with Scott Boris, and he confirmed that Alex Rodriguez has decided to opt out of his contract with the Yankees. Boris said that Rodriguez made this decision today, and he made it because he's uncertain about the future composition of the Yankees. A-Rod needed to make this call within 10 days of the conclusion of the World Series. By then, he probably will not know if Jorge Posada is back, if Andy Pettit is back, if Mariano Rivera is back. He's also unsure about how the Yankees' ownership transition will play out. Boris said he's willing to continue negotiating with the Yankees, but the Yankees have been adamant that they will not negotiate with A-Rod if he opts out because now they will lose the $21 million they would receive from the Rangers over the final three years of his deal. All right, Kenny, thank you. That's big news. And again, it is... Why now? Why are we hearing about this amidst pickoff throws from Brian Fuentes with 12 outs left in the World Series? The reason we would later find out that Rosenthal had just got off the phone with Scott Boris was that Boris had just emailed a bunch of reporters about his client's decision. Of course, it was perfectly reasonable for Alex Rodriguez to opt out of his contract. That was his right, and he ended up making a lot more money because he did so. But making the announcement in the middle of baseball's biggest event, which his team was conspicuously absent from that year, was universally criticized. Boris immediately apologized, taking full responsibility for the timing of the decision. But everyone blamed A-Rod. This just seems so him. It seemed like it was always something with him, ever since he debuted in the big leagues at 18 years old. Here we were, 14 years into Alex Rodriguez's long and historic career at the end of arguably his best season. In a few weeks, he would officially be named the year's AL MVP, coming just two votes away from winning unanimously. And yet, A-Rod couldn't let the season end without screwing something up. This ended up amounting to just a blip between record-setting contracts for one of the best baseball players who ever lived. But it's a revealing one, and it's one that still pisses people off. The truth is that whatever you think about A-Rod now, you probably felt very different about him in 2007, in 2012, in 1996, and in 2017. There have been many iterations of A-Rod, whose public persona has been a vessel for people's feelings about baseball ever since he emerged as a phenom in the early 1990s. It's not a simple arc. Rodriguez has had so many rises and falls that it's tough to keep track of them all at this point. But it is a fascinating one. The story of Alex Rodriguez is not just the story of one elite athlete or one mega celebrity. It's bigger than that. At least, that's what we think. And that's why today we're starting the A-Rod Chronicles. I'm John. I'm James. We're the Lefty Specialists. And this is the A-Rod Chronicles. Chapter one, pure talent. All right. I think we should start, James, with a discussion of why we think A-Rod is worth talking about in the first place. Um, What do you like about A-Rod? 
I mean, so I would say that the, the, there are sort of two components here. So one, I think A-Rod is worth a d- deeper exploration because, uh, you know, he it's contextual almost. He was virtually the most famous baseball player in the world for 20 straight years. Um, he's become such a lightning rod and such an outlet for media and fans to confirm their priors with. So on one level, like, he's useful uh, because he's had such a rich career. It has different periods within it, and and it's sort of marked by uh, different things that he went through. Um, And, you know, it it, it becomes an interesting prism for to talk about larger trends and changes in baseball. But then there's also the second component. um, And... You know, even though I think we try to focus on structural forces and analyses as socialists talking about sports, A-Rod is just such a strange person that it's impossible not to talk about him and how weird he is. And I think that that makes for an appealing character. And, uh, you know, he's just fun to think about and talk about. And, you know, I find it, despite many of his characteristics, I find it impossible to root against him. Yeah, I think I have a basic feeling of, I mean, I I liked watching uh, A-Rod play for the Yankees. I feel like that makes me, and I think you agree with me, but I think that puts us like uh, as outliers amongst Yankee fans who seem to universally despise A-Rod almost from the moment they traded for him. Um, but he, I always found him like just a really fun guy to root for because, uh, especially at least on the field, like he was a uh, uh, he did amazing things. He controlled at bats in a way I had never really seen before. Um, he just did remarkable things all the time. But he had a talent level that I couldn't really appreciate when he was on Seattle and Texas because I think it's something you really get watching him every day and you see the kind of, you know, again, like he he really just took every pitch seriously and he he approached them with such a, with such craft. And he also really loved baseball, which is not always true of great players. Like people would say that, you know, after the Yankee games would end, he would go home and watch the West Coast games because, like, he just loved watching baseball, which is, like, I don't even watch two games in one day. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, whereas, like, that's a contrast to to other players who barely follow the sport outside of their own particular role in it. And then there was the other side, which is that as a, you know, contrarian, you know, impulse person, I always found it interesting that he got so much hate for things that seemed so dumb the most obvious was the clutch hitting stuff. Uh, people criticized him for not being a clutch hitter or a good playoff performer. And that seemed like such bullshit to me because as many people have documented on the internet, the concept of clutch hitting is basically a myth. The concept of, or the, the concept of a clutch hitter is basically a myth, right? So we do, you know, the cliche is clutch hits exist, clutch hitters do not. Um, and it was so obviously, as you said, confirming people's priors. People were looking for reasons uh, to to hold things against A-Rod. And there were very prominent failures in the playoffs, but there were also successes that that people just forgot about. What I did think is interesting, and, and it wasn't just about that, but also about steroids and player salaries and statistics and awards and all people's feelings about that became the locus of those fights became Alex Rodriguez himself. Because as you say, he's just such a weird guy. He comes off as like phony and insincere and just very try hard. Like he just desperately wants to be liked in a way that makes you want to not like him. Um, You know, the comparisons to Derek Jeter, which would follow him basically his whole career, 
those are interesting because they were obviously linked in a lot of big and macro ways that we're going to get to with both their careers being shaped by the same forces. But I think why people gravitated to the the comparison was that their personalities were so dissimilar. You know, Jeter is somebody who will like say something insulting to you in a way that makes you like him and think he's fun and charming. Whereas A-Rod will say something nice to you in a way that makes you think he sucks. And like, <laughs> this is such a hard thing to quantify. And, you know, it's this interesting confluence of the individual person versus all these structural things that A-Rod was at the center of that we're gonna, gonna get into as this series progresses. Yeah. He contains such contradictions, you know, he, he was a locker room cancer, but he would buy new suits for rookies on the Yankees, you know, and like, uh, there, there are so many little anecdotes and little moments and and so many layers to A-Rod that, uh, you know, I, I am excited that we're doing this. I think the central question we're going to try to get at is to what extent can an individual sort of transcend his material circumstances? Because whenever we talk about A-Rod, love him or hate him, or say whatever you want about him, it's tempting to chalk it all up to the result of his own choices and his behavior, his talent or his dumb decisions or his weird personality. But on the other hand, he always seems to be operating at the fulcrum of a million different social forces. Some of that worked to his benefit. I mean, he made so much money as a baseball player, largely due to quirks of the free agency era that happened to come around the time he entered the market. But it also worked against him, most obviously the way he absorbs so much of the anger of the steroid era. But yeah, so this is going to be, to introduce it more in depth, this is going to be a running series. We're thinking eight to ten episodes, but it's going to be, we're going to kind of play it by year. And and uh, we're going to sort of start with the early part of A-Rod's career and, and, and try and cover uh, as much as we can. Right, James? Anything I forgot? No, I, there, there are particular moments that I almost want to tease, you know, but I, I will get there. I promise. Yeah, yeah. I don't want to, <laughs> we don't want to spoil too much. I think most people know the big moments, but there's also ones that I think a lot of people have forgotten about that are just sort of crazy. Um, and we'll, we'll, we'll cover as much as we can. I mean, it's too, it's too much to cover all. We're only two people, you know, we can't, we can't do it. <laughs> Um, I'm tempted to start with something very like dramatic and official sounding like Alex, Alexander Emmanuel Rodriguez was born on July 7th, 1975. Uh, well, I feel like you have to say it now. You just teased it. Okay, fine. Uh, <laughs> Alexander Emmanuel Rodriguez was born on July 27th, 1975. He was born in Washington Heights in Manhattan. His parents were Victor and Lourdes Rodriguez. Uh, Lourdes was formerly Navarro. Uh, Both were immigrants from the Dominican Republic. It was the second marriage for both of his parents. And so Alex, who was the baby of the family, had significantly older half-siblings from both sides of the family. His oldest brother, Victor Jr., in fact, was born in 1960. That's 15 years before A-Rod. And he was born in the Dominican Republic. And by the time Alex was in kindergarten, Victor Jr. had joined the United States Air Force. The two didn't have much of a relationship until they were both adults. He was closer with his siblings on his mother's side. Um, that was Joe and Susie, children from an earlier marriage from her. Uh, and they lived with him in Washington Heights in Alex's early years. Alex's father, Victor, ran a shoe store. The family lived in the same building on 183rd Street. His mother worked at a GM plant. Uh, the economic circumstances that Alex grew up in are hard to precisely define, and they often change due to 
move, you know, moves and divorce and things like that. And this would come up later in Alex's career in various accounts of his childhood, whether he like, quote unquote, grew up poor or had a comfortable background that would be like bandied about, you know, people would use different phrases to, to accuse him of lying and such. Um, and that in general would be used as examples of him trying to give whatever answers people wanted to hear. But of course, our, a lot of people's class position, especially immigrants, is fluid. And it would be for A-Rod throughout his life. I was born in New York City. My parents are both immigrants from Dominican Republic. My dad left us when I was about 10. And then I was raised by a single mother here in Miami. My mother was a workhorse. She would wake up at seven, drop us off at school, go be a secretary, and then go serve tables at night. It was quite an inspiration to watch her grind it out every day. But anyway, Alex would remember the years he spent in New York in the late 1970s fondly, even if it was a tumultuous time. Victor's shoes did well, and in 1979, the family moved back to the Dominican Republic. 1979 saw the end of the 12 years a period in Dominican history defined by the second presidency of Joaquin Balaguer. Balaguer had been a deputy for Rafael Trujillo, the brutal dictator who ruled the Dominican Republic for more than 30 years. Trujillo was assassinated, with the help of the CIA, in 1961 during Balaguer's first term as president. The years after the assassination were tumultuous. There were the first free elections in decades, then a military coup, then an invasion by the United States in 1965, after which Balaguer had returned to power and governed as a sort of Trujillo light. But it was during the tumultuous interregnum that Alex's dad, who had been a Trujillo opponent, divorced his first wife and first emigrated to the United States. This period, between the 1961 assassination of Trujillo and the 1965 liberalization of American immigration laws, was the first real wave of Dominican immigration to the U.S., and it was actually a period where most of the immigrants were middle class, since they were generally political emigres who had been part of the opposition to Trujillo, and they were assisted by the U.S. Embassy. If you read between the lines here, you can see that uh, Alex's dad worked for the CIA. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if we're going to keep that in, but uh, I like the I like the take. <laughs> right. By 1979, Belaguer was out of power yet again, and the Rodriguez family returned to the Dominican Republic. They traded in their apartment next to a shoe store for a four-bedroom house that had live-in help, and for a time they lived quite large. This was also around the time that Alex first started to get into baseball. Although he was still only five, uh, he was playing a lot with his older siblings and kids in the neighborhood. Then, after just a few years in the Dominican Republic, the family's financial luck turned. Victor had been running a pharmacy, uh, and he had also left the shoe store, Victor's Shoes, in the hands of relatives. But business had gone south, and the Rodriguez's moved back to the U.S., this time to Miami around 1981. Miami would be Alex's home for the next decade plus, and really for the rest of his life, as he established deep connections in the community. He is still alive, I should know. <laughs> his life till now. Till now. I remember as a kid attending uh, camp here, always dreaming to come to the University of Miami. And sneaking in every day after school on Friday, there was a blind spot that the security couldn't see, and it was right by the left field pole. And I would hop the fence with a couple of friends, and we would spend eight to ten hours here on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. It was really a dream come true. One of those deep connections was Juan Diego Ortega, who was an early baseball coach for him, and whose son would be a high school teammate of Alex's. 
Before we get there, though, we have to talk about the saddest part of Alex's childhood. In 1985, before Alex Rodriguez's 10th birthday, his father, Victor, moved back to New York City, leaving Alex and his mother back in Miami. According to Victor, he wanted to move back to New York for economic reasons. He was planning to open up another store, and he wanted to bring Lourdes and Alex with him. Uh, his, the two older half-siblings had graduated high school by then. But according to what Lourdes told Alex, Miami was not fast-paced enough for Victor, and he basically left the family. Whatever the reason, he did leave the family behind in Miami and had virtually no contact with his son for over a decade. It was all very confusing for Alex, who until then had been very close with his father. And he was young enough that he was sheltered from what was going on. In 1998, he told the Seattle Times, He had been so good to me, actually spoiled me because I was the baby of the family. I couldn't understand what he had done. What did I know back then? I thought he was coming back. I thought he had gone to the store or something. But he never came back. It still hurts. This is the kind of origin story that can take on an outsized role in the mythology of a figure like A-Rod. Indeed, there are so many stories about A-Rod that use this incident, being abandoned by his father as a little boy, to explain everything that came after. His desire to be great, his desperation for approval, his need to be liked, his painful insecurity, his own divorce, being too focused on baseball, being not focused enough on baseball. You can make almost any narrative fit if you work hard enough. So we should be careful about forcing any lessons from this part of the story. But it happened, and it was obviously a tremendously traumatizing thing that had a huge impact on Alex Rodriguez. Just as it would be silly to pretend to know exactly how such a thing affected him, it would be even sillier to pretend that, that it had no impact whatsoever. One impact it clearly had on him was making him even closer with his mother, who worked two jobs as a single parent to support Alex. His older siblings, Joe and Susie, also helped get him, into, get him to baseball practice, and he spent nights at the home of Artiega, his baseball coach. As a kid, Alex often played on a team with older players, and so he was smaller than the other guys in a lot of his team photos. Which leads us to an interesting question. When exactly did A-Rod emerge as a baseball phenom? His freshman year of high school, he went to Christopher Columbus, a Catholic school in Miami-Dade County. But according to the baseball couch at Columbus, he went there to play basketball, not baseball. He was a pretty good basketball player. He could dunk as a freshman, supposedly. And he was too skinny to hit for power on the baseball diamond. According to a Sports Illustrated story from 2010, A-Rod didn't even make the varsity baseball team as a freshman, and later, according to his family, he threatened to quit the sport entirely. But the next year, he transferred to Westminster Christian, another private school, this one Calvinist, in Palmetto Bay. Westminster was smaller than Christopher Columbus, but it was something of a baseball powerhouse, led by Rich Hoffman, who would go on to win 10 state titles in Florida and be named Coach of the Decade for the 1990s by Baseball America. It was, again, the Artiega family who helped connect A-Rod to Hoffman. Juan Artiega's son, J.D., was already playing for Westminster, and he arranged a tryout. At the time, Hoffman did not think much of Alex, considering him a light-hitting, slick-fielding shortstop, but obviously there was some potential there. He arranged for a scholarship for A-Rod to help cover the $5,000 tuition at Westminster. His sophomore year, Alex hit just 256, but his junior year was the real coming out party. In the fall, he had been the quarterback for the football team, leading them to a 9-1 record. And then in the spring, he had 477 with 42 stolen bases for the baseball team, helping lead them to a national championship. That summer, he played for the U.S. national team at the Junior Baseball World Championship and hit 425. And by the start of his senior year, he had officially reached phenom status. This is probably time to pause and bring up something that's going to be a recurring 
theme or undercurrent or motif, I don't know, throughout this series, but that's steroids. Obviously, it's impossible to talk about Alex Rodriguez without talking about steroids and performance-enhancing drugs in baseball. And as we said, part of what we find so fascinating about A-Rod is the way his career dovetails with the steroid issue at different times and in different ways. I'm going to put my cards on the table, full disclosure here. I personally see the steroid panic in baseball as basically just a kind of anti-labor rhetoric that, not coincidentally, popped up at the exact moment that player salaries started to increase. I think steroid panic is overblown on both a practical level and a moral level. I don't think it's been ever been clear that PEDs have the kind of effects a lot of fans and writers imagine, and I don't really understand why Major League Baseball has any right to regulate what its players do with its bo- their own bodies. But I understand that I'm in the minority on this issue. I don't even really know if James fully agrees with me on this stuff. I mean, I I'm close to to where you're at. I mean, I I would quibble about some of the the effects stuff and and uh, like some of the the margins of of what you just said. But uh, just for the sake of argument, um, so can you spell out why why do you think that that's the correct position? What about guys like Ken Caminiti or Lyle Alzado? What about the guys who uh, seem to clearly have had their life shortened by the effects of steroids and who uh, experience these health effects? Don't you think that that creates a pressure effect on other players? Don't you think that's something we should uh, try to avoid as as sports fans and and if you're the the MLB running a sports league yeah i mean i think that you know we can have a discussion about the health effects of of any individual drug although it's worth pointing out that both uh, that lot for the Lyle Alzado example that you brought up um he claimed that uh the his steroid use was responsible for I believe it was brain cancer or uh, some it was a tumor in his brain that that he died relatively young of um, but there's been no, I mean, science, doctors and scientists say that there's really no evidence that steroids cause that kind of thing. Um, and he's claimed that like steroids impacted his life in other ways. And that's certainly true. I mean, steroids are not good for you. I'm not not trying to make that argument. Um, and, you know, Ken Kamedi is an interesting example because he's somebody who, uh, if you believe what he told Sports Illustrated, which I don't think there's any reason to, to deny to why he, you know, I don't know why he would lie about this. His story is he was playing in San Diego. He drove to Mexico, went somewhere, saw something that said testosterone on it, bought it at an over-the-counter pharmacy in Mexico, took it without any kind of doctor's approval or whatever, uh, or over supervision, took so much testosterone that his body ended up stopped producing it. So he had to get testosterone supplements for the rest of his life. And yeah, you shouldn't take drugs except under the guidance of a doctor. Um, I agree with that. But I think, you know, as we know from the drug war and from lots of things that, you know, banning drugs or making things, making it illegal to use drugs doesn't, you know, get rid of them. It just makes the usage of them more dangerous uh, and less safe. I think that, you know, that in general, look, we can talk about whether or not baseball players should be using steroids, but the answer should not be to ban it at the league-wide level. And I don't think practically that the league is capable of banning it. I mean, we've seen how flawed steroid testing is. The joke is that it's an intelligence test and not a drug test because they're so easy to beat. But philosophically, I don't think the league has the moral standing to ban steroids. You know, your employer should not be allowed to drug test you. That's not the same as saying you should use drugs. We just know that drug tests from your boss are going to be used to punish workers unfairly. Again, like these are these are larger issues. And we're going to do eventually a whole episode on the the steroid issue. But uh, I just want to foreground that. Right. Uh, So do you have any other questions before we get to the. 
Yeah, I mean, don't you think it's the responsibility of the MLB to create a level playing field? And and uh, can you explain how uh, why you steroids shouldn't be a concern if you're concerned about fair play? Yeah, I mean, it's not the baseball's responsibility to create a level playing field. It's never going to be a level playing field. Like that's not the right lens through which to define fair play. Some players are better than others. Some players have advantages that other players don't have. Maybe they grew up with more money or in a family that valued sports. Maybe they grew up in a climate that was more favorable to playing baseball. You know, life is not a level playing field. The league only has a responsibility to create a level playing field on the playing field. You know, make sure the rules are consistent. Make sure the umps aren't favoring a side, that players aren't throwing games, that sort of thing. But you can't take unfairness out of life. And once you give the league the ability to try to do that, you end up granting them the power to violate the freedom and the autonomy of their workforce. You know, why did you see that doctor? What are you sick with? What medicine are you on? Those are huge invasions of privacy. And I don't think we should support that. Like, what are we even doing it for? A drug testing system that doesn't work, that punishes people for taking drugs that don't even do what fans think they do. Um, I think what people, people think is there's some sort of natural level of talent that if you did nothing and had no interventions, that would be the right. To, but it's like you can never get there. What do you mean? Like everybody practices the same number of hours. Everybody grows up in the same environment. Everybody eats the same food and lives in the same climate. I mean, it's just never going to happen. And I think we as fans who care about labor rights and how baseball, you know, things that happen in baseball impact normal life. We should be very wary of owners who are just bosses that them of them trying to decide how much testosterone should be in your body or just generally trying to govern your body. And the discussion of steroids in baseball often forgets that baseball players are people, that their talent isn't some natural resource or raw material that's there to be mined by the owners. We talk as if there's some level of natural ability, some kind of pure talent that is insulated from the rest of life, but that's just not true. Talent has to be cultivated and harnessed. It has to be turned into a skill by players. You know, if the players want to work together collectively and along with their union support a testing system to, you know, make sure they aren't tempted to use drugs that hurt their health in the long term, that's great, but it should not come from the bosses. But don't you think people who do steroids are inherently bad? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's what this boils down to, right? Is it's attempt to, to defame somebody's character. And I think that's a great transition back to A-Rod because the, the A-Rod's first connection to steroids um, at least, uh, at least tangible or explicit, not just speculation, came in the 2009 biography of A-Rod um, from former New York Times writer Selena Roberts, who accused uh, A-Rod of using PEDs. Um, she actually uncovered the positive test that he had in 2003, and that story was broken slightly before the biography came out, but it was all by Selena Roberts. And um, in her book, she argues that A-Rod did, um, did PEDs as early as high school, that it wasn't just in... Uh, when he got to Texas or when he was in Seattle or with the Yankees that he was doing it as early as high school. And she attributes the surge in productivity going into his junior season to PEDs. And I think that's something that is it. It's, it's clearly when you read that book or when you look at the reporting around somebody like A-Rod or around somebody like Barry Bonds, it's an attempt to say, look at this person. Their accomplishments are immoral. They're impure. They're not deserving of your praise. It's not really any attempt to prove any the effect of it. Um, because her evidence against A-Rod is basically that uh, he gained 25 pounds of muscle and could bench press 300 pounds by his junior year. 
And a lot of people in Miami in the early 90s had access to steroids. Those are her basically her two arguments. Um, she does quote former teammates who like, you know, it's all like of the it's all anonymous and it's of the, the kind of thing that's they knew a guy who knew a guy who says they heard from some other guy that A-Rod did steroids or they heard A-Rod on the phone calling somebody and he said something, something steroids. And it's like that kind of stuff. Um, there is a third thing, John, I, I think she brings up. Uh, she alleges a friendship with Jose Canseco. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> he does say that she, he was friends with Jose Canseco. And obviously, if you're friends with Jose Canseco, it's because you do steroids. Um, and so, like, a lot of this is all very circumstantial. Um, but I think the prevalence of steroids in Miami or in, 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 in athletic culture is actually uh, an interesting one. But as, as flimsy as all this is, because we know A-Rod did do steroids and he did lie about it, those are basically facts, um, the kinds of claims that Selena Roberts makes here have an air of credibility about them that they otherwise wouldn't. Um, but what are we really talking about here? I mean, this is a high school athlete putting on muscle. This is not a shocking thing. This is something that happens at every high school <laughs> all the time. They High school athletes gain weight. That's a normal thing. Does it really require some sort of chemical explanation? Um, and A-Rod was not especially muscular even after his supposed weight gain. The thing about him bench pressing 300 pounds, that's what he says he bench presses. Do not believe guys when, when they tell you what they bench, you know, <laughs> especially years later. Um, so f- like for context, in his junior season when he hit 477 and really emerged on the scene, he hit six total home runs. Like it, he was not a power hitter. It was not somebody who put on a lot of, of muscle mass. Um, but the way these moral panics work is that once somebody you've, are, is sullied by the accusation, then everything they do is suspect. And Rodriguez certainly was exceptional in the literal sense of the word. 63 scouts showed up to the first game of his senior season in 1993. In March of that year, Sports Illustrated ran a two-page spread on him. There was also a story covering him in the LA Times in which he assured the writer that he, quote-unquote, had a girlfriend. <laughs> that one's for me. Uh, <laughs> The funny thing now about reading that initial round of press coverage of A-Rod, aside from the fact that nobody actually calls him A-Rod yet, is a sense of unabashed praise that hovers around him. It's all just glowing and uncomplicated and excited. There's no sense that he's some Machiavellian and press hound or an insecure prima donna. Obviously, you can't really write that stuff about a kid in high school who even displayed those attributes. But there's just a sense of hope around him because he hadn't disappointed anyone yet. And his senior year was even better than his junior year. His batting average was over 600 for much of it before crashing down after a slump down to the low levels of 505. He also increased his home run total to nine. Before the season was over, he had committed to the University of Miami, but most observers figured he would be the number one pick in the draft that year and go pro. Indeed, on June 6th, 1993, the Seattle Mariners made Alex Rodriguez the first overall pick hoping to pair him with the other first overall pick they'd selected six years earlier, Ken Griffey Jr. And then Scott Boris got involved. Scott Boris is probably another uh, motif that we have in this series because it's difficult to talk about A-Rod and the controversies around him without talking about his former agent, Scott Boris. Boris grew up in near Sacramento, California. He played minor league baseball in the mid-1970s before Uh, giving up the sport and getting his law degree at the University of the Pacific. In the 1980s, he was working as a corporate lawyer defending pharmaceutical companies from class action lawsuits, just real noble stuff. Uh, When a former minor league teammate named Bill Caudill asked him for advice on a new contract, Uh, Boris got Caudill 
a five-year, $7 million deal, which was a huge windfall for a closer, which is what uh, Cadill was. Um, and Boris's career as an agent was launched. One thing Boris was known for was demanding high pay for top draft picks. That was one of his early big scores. He secured a $1 million in guaranteed money, including a $350,000 signing bonus for Ben McDonald in 1989. He was the number one pick that year. The next year for Todd Van Poppel, he got $1.2 million and a $500,000 bonus. And in 1991, he broke records pulling a $1.5 million bonus for the number one pick, Brian Taylor. Yankees legend. <laughs> Yankees legend indeed. Uh, now, you might be forgiven for not knowing the names Brian Taylor, Todd Van Poppel, or Ben McDonald. Those are great, immaculate grid names. Ben McDonald, Brewers, and Orioles. Use it. <laughs> yeah, don't use Taylor, though. He never even made the major leagues. Uh, and none of them were really destined for the greatness that lay ahead for A-Rod. And Boris couldn't see the future, of course, but the consensus was that Alex was a once-in-a-generation talent and Boris wanted him to be paid like one. He suggested that Alex hold out for at least $2.5 million, but the Mariners, never big spenders, did not want to go past a million. The two sides were at an impasse all summer long, with the Mariners, of course, blaming Boris for the inability to resolve the issue. He wouldn't let the team talk directly to the Rodriguez family. He insisted that all communication be done by fax because this was the early 90s. Um, and Boris couldn't become, uh, he, Boris couldn't officially become Alex's agent. If he did, then Rodriguez would lose his amateur status and be unable to play at the University of Miami. And of course, the only leverage that Alex had was the threat that he might actually go to college since Seattle had the exclusive rights to him as a professional baseball player. This left Boris as only a, quote, unofficial family advisor, which the team then accused him of manipulating the family. And the Mariners just dangled that $1 million offer in front of the family all summer long, um, basically saying, this is all you get, take it or leave it. And of course, this is a classic mode of exploitation. You set up an unfair system, in this case, the draft, and you tell people who demand better that they should be grateful it's not more unfair. After all, $1 million is a lot of money, isn't it? Isn't that more than your family has right now? Very few draft picks get even that much. Isn't it selfish to demand more? After all, wouldn't that mean money mean so much to you and your loved ones? The news stories from that summer, to the modest extent that amateur baseball signings are covered in the news, started to turn slightly against Alex. No longer was he just the talented golden boy. Now he was either the greedy holdout or a schmuck being manipulated by Boris. That summer, at a tournament game in San Antonio, an errant throw sailed into the dugout and hit Alex in the face, breaking his cheek. It was a minor injury, but a reminder that sometimes crazy shit happens, and nothing's guaranteed. Still, Boris wanted the family to hold out for more. Then, a family friend named Joe Ariola, a local Miami businessman and political insider, intervened in the negotiations. He met privately with the Mariners reps at a hotel near the Miami airport, cutting Boris out of the negotiations entirely. The team came up slightly to $1.3 million. And then Alex, who was already at the University of Miami, got a call warning him not to go to his intro to psychology class. Apparently that's how these things work. The negotiation window ends when you go to your first class. Boris and Alex's sister, Susie, both disapproved of the deal, but Alex signed it. He got a $500,000 bonus and a guarantee to be called up to the majors the next season. In retrospect, of course, it was good that Alex took the deal since getting to the majors so young was how he became a free agent at 25 and how he was able to sign two different contracts worth two, more than $250 million during his career. 
So it was in the end, it was probably worth losing a million or so on that first contract. Yeah, see, Boris really almost screwed him over by telling him uh, not to take it. Um, so yeah, so so Alex started his pro career that year, excuse me, the next year in Appleton, Wisconsin, with the Mariners' Class A team. Before the season even started and before he'd played a professional game, Baseball America ranked him the number six prospect in baseball. In 65 games in Appleton, he hit 319, 14 home runs, 17 doubles, and six triples. He got sent to Double A in Jacksonville, and then in July, he was called straight to the majors before his 19th birthday. His first game for the Mariners was July 8, 1994, in Boston. He went 0 for 3. He got his first career hit the next day on a weak little ground ball to third base. His first RBI came a week later, but overall, he was outmatched. He struck out in over a third of his plate appearances and did not record an extra base hit in 17 games. Just a few days after he turned 19, he was sent back to the minors, this time to Calgary, to play in AAA. But a few weeks later, the season was cut short by the 1994 player strike. When play resumed in 95, it was more of the same for Alex. He shuttled back and forth between the minors, this time in Tacoma, Washington, just glorious places where these minor leagues teams all are, uh, where he tore the cover off the ball, and the majors, where he seemed in over his head again. He played in 48 games for Seattle over three different stints. On May 11th, he got his first extra base hit. On June 12th, he hit his first career home run at home against Tom Gordon of Kansas City. It's like, it's like fastball. 3-2 pitch. Curveball belted deep to left field. And Alex Rodriguez has number one in the show. And it is eight to four. He came back with a breaking ball. A curveball and Alex Rodriguez hit it out. My, oh my. Number one for Alex Rodriguez. Fastball, 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 curveball and belted. But as the season hit its final stretch, Rodriguez watched from the bench as the Mariners, historically the laughing stocks of the league, made their first ever playoff run by going 17-5 and down in the last weeks of the season. Alex actually made the postseason roster for the Mariners in 1995, but he didn't see any action until Game 5 of the division series against the Yankees when he entered the game in the eighth inning as a pinch runner for Tino Martinez. He actually scored the game-tying run and then got his first at-bat in the ninth inning with the potential series-winning run on second but he grounded out. A couple innings later, in the 11th, the Mariners were rallying again, and with Alex Rodriguez on deck, Edgar Martinez came up with the tying run on third and the winning run at first, and then this happened. They would love a base hit into the gap, and they could win it with junior speed, the stretch. And the 0-1 pitch on the way to Edgar Martinez. Swung on the line, down the left field line for a base hit. Here comes Joy. Here is Junior to third base. They're going to wave him in. The throw to the plate will be late. The Mariners are going to play for the American League Championship. I don't believe it. It just continues. My, oh, my. Edgar Martinez with a double. Ripped down the left field line, and they are going crazy at the kingdom. The first player to hug Junior after he scored at the bottom of the pile, mobbing him, was Alex, who never got the chance to bat. In the ALCS, Rodriguez's only at-bat came in, in Game 4, with the Mariners already down 7-0 in the ninth. He struck out to end the game. But going into the 1996 season, expectations were high for both the Mariners as a team and Rodriguez as an individual. Though 95 was his introduction and technically counted as his rookie season, in 1996, A-Rod would play the lead. 
He was on the roster on opening day as the team's starting shortstop. No more cups of coffee or tryouts or shuttles back and forth to the minors. Finally, it was time for the Phenom to put up. And boy, did he put up. This was opening day. Two to two, last of the 12th. The 20-year-old Alex Rodriguez with a chance to be the hero. Right center. The ball game is over. And Rodriguez is the hero. and he does a good job of just putting his bat on it. The first pitch he overswung. This one he just puts a line drive in play. Nice piece of hitting there by Rodriguez. And there you see Strange coming across scoring the winning run. And for the Mariners, maybe the magic has only just begun. It took a long time coming tonight, but come it did. In 12 innings, the Mariners have beaten the White Sox. A night to remember for 20-year-old Alex Rodriguez. A-Rod's 1996 season is quite possibly the best baseball season ever by a 20-year-old. It's up there with Dwight Gooden in 1985, Mike Trout in 2012, and Mickey Mantle in 1952. Rodriguez led the league in batting average, doubles, and total bases, hit 36 home runs, and stole 15 bases, all while playing elite-level defense at short. It was exactly what every scout had been predicting for him for years. He actually started the year a little slow after those opening day heroics, but by the end of April, he lifted his average to 293. Then on May 8th, his manager, Lou Pinella, moved him up in the batting order to second, where he had hit in front of Ken Griffey Jr., Edgar Martinez, and Jay Buhner in that order. This stretch of Seattle's lineup was a pretty devastating middle of the order, and the Mariners led the AL in runs scored that season, even while giving a ton of at-bats to guys like Luis Soho and Doug Strange. They would have been a really good team if if it weren't for their pitching staff. But after the lineup switch was made, Rodriguez was off. In the next 49 games, he hit 360 with 13 home runs. And that wasn't even his best stretch of the year. In August, he hit 435 with nine home runs in the month. The week of the All-Star game in the summer of 96, Alex appeared on the cover of Sports Illustrated with the cover headline, Hot Player, only a few days before he would become the youngest shortstop ever to play in the game. And frankly, the lead of that Sports Illustrated feature is too good not to quote. The article starts like this. In the off-season, he lives with his mother, Lourdes Navarro, and shares a bedroom with his best friend, a three-year-old German shepherd named Ripper. He plays golf each morning and hoops each evening, and by 10 p.m. he is nestled in bed with his Nintendo control pad. He makes Roy Hobbs look like John Crook, and he makes you wonder if you're missing something. A guy this sweet has to be hiding some cavities. On July 27th, Alex Rodriguez will turn 21, making him old enough to have a beer with his Seattle Mariners teammates. He says he's not interested. Can't stand the taste, he says. Rodriguez has always felt more at home among milk drinkers. (laughs) My God. I feel like this is the kind of thing you write about something if you're trying to say positive things, but also make the person seem awful. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, like it makes it sound like his only friend is his dog. He falls asleep with a Nintendo controller, which you might as well just call him a virgin. And then like 
he's too lame for beer. Yeah, he can only drink <laughs> milk. Yeah. And uh, in 2022, Alex is the president of uh, Presidente, the Dominican beer. So a uh, real, real flip there. Yeah, so. how, little, how little we knew in 1996. Uh, but this article is a fascinating time capsule, and it makes two things clear about the 96 season. First, A-Rod had arrived as a superstar. And then second, so had sports media's weird fascination with his interior <laughs> life. Definitely. And so A-Rod was trying to aw shucks his way through some budding MVP talk, but there was some locker room tension that was afoot. I wonder if this will come up again as we get into the A-Rod Chronicles. Stop spoiling stuff, James. <laughs> We're sticking with 96 for now because 1996, Ken Griffey Jr. also had a monster year. It was probably the best year of his career to that point. He had 49 home runs, 140 RBIs. And so there was a little bit of a power struggle in the locker room. The A-Rod Griffey comparisons were obvious. They were both number one picks who were billed as can't-miss prospects, who debuted in the majors as teenagers, who were celebrated for their all-around tools, and they were on the same team. In the aforementioned Sports Illustrated story that James just read from, A-Rod is twice referred to as Junior Junior. It was six years ago that a rare 19-year-old took his place in the Mariners lineup. And today, there's a new kid turning heads for Seattle, Alex Rodriguez. History repeats itself a little bit with Junior being here at uh, 19 years old, making the club. Uh, that gives me a little bit of inspiration. Well, I know what he's going through, being a first-round pick, um, being a, what you call a bonus baby and all that. So, And being thrown in the big leagues at an early age, and uh, he's handled it real well. In fact, the way the Phenom shoes fit reminds you of, well, Griffey. But Junior, who was a new father and had led the team through a bleak rebuilding process earlier in the decade, was always quick to point out their differences. That same Sports Illustrated story included an anecdote about Griffey shooing A-Rod away from some photos of his newborn daughter, telling him, this is grown-up business, you're just a kid, go do kid stuff. That may have been just garden variety hazing and, and pretty light hazing at that, but there was still some tension and passive aggressiveness between the two of them. Later in the season, amidst the A-Rod, M- A-Rod for MVP talk, Griffey started to lament that his own contributions were being overlooked. I hope he doesn't get some of what I get, 45 or so bombs and 135 ribbies, and people say, just junior having a junior year, nothing special. I mean, that's kind of a passive-aggressive thing to say. Uh, during the year, A-Rod took pains to say that he understood that Griffey was the leader of the team. In that All-Star Week article, he dismissed the comparison, saying that it's an insult to Griffey. He's the best. I can't wear his jock, A-Rod said. Down the stretch, he said... I don't see how I can be the MVP when I'm not the MVP of my own team, referring obviously to Griffey. Uh, and he acknowledged Griffey's role in the lineup, saying, the most obvious thing Junior does for me is get me better pitches. We shouldn't overstate the discord here. The Mariners were really good. And, all for, and for all the evidence of any internal rivalry, there's just as many anecdotes about Rodriguez and Griffey playing video games together and sharing hitting tips and stuff like that. Junior was the Mariners' leader, but A-Rod had emerged. That nickname, A-Rod, in fact, was now everywhere. I don't think Alex Rodriguez invented the idea of pairing your first initial with the first syllable of your last name, but he definitely made it a trend. A-Rod was cool. He was, if not already the best player in baseball, I think most people would have still said Griffey at that point, but A-Rod was on the cusp of that title. He did everything. 
The concept of a, quote, five-tool player in baseball is a little flawed. The five tools refer to hitting for power, hitting for average, running, throwing, and fielding. But not every tool is equally important, and not every baseball skill is really included in the tools. But it's an idea that gets at something important, the idea of a well-rounded superstar. The 1990s saw an explosion of home run hitters, but most of them had glaring holes in their game. Maybe they were indifferent or even bad fielders or liabilities on the base paths, or they couldn't really hit for average. Even somebody like Barry Bonds had a weak arm. And in 1996, A-Rod was set up as a natural counter to the glut of home run heavy sluggers dominating baseball. And the media did their best to play this up. Another Sports Illustrated article at the conclusion of the season framed the AL MVP race as a contest between two frontrunners, Rodriguez and slugger Albert Bell of Cleveland. But whereas Albert Bell was a surly prima donna who played a poor left field and caused problems in the clubhouse, the article framed A-Rod as an asset to the game, someone who played exciting defense and did everything the right way. And it was true. He could do it all. He hit for power, for average. He could run. He could field. He knew how to draw walks. He even had six sacrifice bunts in 96. The only player like that, really, was his teammate Ken Griffey Jr., and A-Rod seemed poised to pass even him. That might explain why there was some rivalry between the two of them. Not for nothing, but it's worth pointing out that Albert Bell was, at this time, just months away from signing baseball's first $50 million contract, whereas Alex, the good choice for MVP, was still on a rookie deal. I'm sure that dynamic will never work against Alex Rodriguez. But yet, when the 96 season ended, the American League MVP didn't go to A-Rod, or his teammate Griffey, or even Albert Bell. It went to Juan Gonzalez of the Texas Rangers. This sort of came out of nowhere. Gonzalez hit 47 home runs and drove in 144 runs that year, but he didn't have a particularly strong MVP argument. He led the league in exactly zero offensive categories and played terrible defense in right field. In retrospect, the choice is something of a debacle. Gonzalez mustered just a 3.8 wins above replacement, while Rodriguez and Griffey put up 9.4 and 9.7 win seasons respectively. And even their teammate Edgar Martinez almost doubled up Gonzalez at 6.5 wins. Again, we cannot emphasize how bad Seattle's pitching was in 96. Yeah, really. Upon receiving the award, even Juan Gonzalez was shocked. When it was announced, he said, Alex Rodriguez is a wonderful young player, and everybody talked about him all year as the number one contender. So right now, I'm surprised and happy. And if it feels like Gonzalez's win was an accident of history, it may have literally been one. John Hickey of the Oakland Tribune voted Gonzalez first and Rodriguez seventh on the 10-place ballot, and when asked about it, said that he thought he voted Rodriguez second, and eventually said, I'm surprised I voted Rodriguez that low. To be clear, uh, uh, because of the weird Baseball Writers Association voting rules, a second-place ballot instead of a seventh-place ballot would have given A-Rod five additional points in the voting system, and he only finished three points back of Gonzalez, so it would have gotten him the award. But more haunting than that was two first-place votes from Seattle beat writers, either one of which would would have put A-Rod over the top, that both went to Ken Griffey Jr., who finished fourth in the overall vote. A-Rod would later admit that it hurt to get passed over by his hometown writers in favor of his teammate, even if he said at the time that he thought Griffey deserved it over him. As he put it much later in 2007, I was almost in tears in 1996 when I didn't win the award and it was very painful. At the time, I was 20 years old and thought I would never get another chance to win it. I found that quote very striking. 
By the end of 1996, A-Rod was barely 21, having just put up arguably the best season ever for a shortstop, and was still the darling of the baseball world. He was on a roster with three other Hall of Famers still in their prime, and he would go on to play 19 more big league seasons. Weren't all the accolades still on their way? But I don't see what he's saying there as naivety. Rodriguez knew how hard this was. He had seen Ken Griffey Jr.'s best shot at breaking the single-season home run record interrupted by the strike two years earlier. And even Jr. hadn't won an MVP by 96. He knew how hard it was to travel on the road from Seattle for a 162-game season. And even more importantly, he had a sense of how conditional everything was at the big league level. How quickly his production or health could change. How much luck was needed to have a season that good. And how swiftly positive media coverage could turn. But on the other hand, you could see how a quote like that would get people mad. In addition to being a little ridiculous to complain about not being the MVP when you're only 21 and basically you're in your first season, it looks like yet another example of Alex Rodriguez looking at individual accomplishments over team wins. Because probably a big reason for Gonzalez's winning the award was that his team, unlike Alex's and unlike Albert Bell's and Griffey's obviously, made the playoffs. Despite the high expectations of the 96 Mariners following the 95 run and the best efforts of Rodriguez and Griffey, the the Seattle Mariners finished four and a half back in the division and two and a half back in the wild card, missing the playoffs entirely in 1996. Their high-powered offense just wasn't enough to overcome injuries to Randy Johnson and a truly miserable pitching staff. They ended up just 85 and 76 for the year. Looking back on that 1996 season and the years before them, it's funny to realize that the seeds of practically every narrative that would follow A-Rod throughout his career were already there. The individual success coupled with team disappointment, the passive-aggressive feuds with teammates and tension in the clubhouse, the suspicion regarding his pay, even his awkward interactions with the media. It's all there, all in stories in 1996. Even though they're positive, they still generally regard him as disingenuous in his attempts to be humble. But in 1996, none of that really mattered. Nobody hated A-Rod yet. Nobody wanted to tear him down. If he was a little phony and a little faux humble, so what? Weren't a lot of baseball stars like that? So even though he was still the same guy in 1996, he was pure potential. He was a low salary for owners and unchecked possibility for fans. There was no reason to dislike him. If his team hadn't won yet, that just gave him something to work towards. The best for A-Rod was yet to come. Chapter one brings us to the end of the 1996 season, and we wanted to provide some running A-Rod career totals. So at this point, he has 41 career home runs and an 8.7 wins above replacement, according to baseballreference.com. That's actually less than the 9.4 wins above replacement season he had in 1996. His appearances as an 18 and 19 year old actually hold him back here. Yeah, if not for those seasons, he might be in the Hall of Fame. The A-Rod Chronicles is an undrafted production brought to you by us, the Lefty Specialists, written, edited, and produced by the Lefty Specialists. Music composed by Lonnie Ginsberg. Until next week. Mm-hmm.